Sandy Clough and Sean Trotar. Weekdays at 2 on Mile High Sports. And indeed, we are here at the start of yet another week on this 2015th, sorry, go ahead on myself, not quite the 22nd yet, 15th day of May, 2023, Sandy Clef, Sean Rotar, Mile High Sports Radio 98.1 FM 107.5 HD3, our caller text line remains 303-831-1340. We're streaming on milehighsports.com slash listen and the free MHS app. Our producers, as per usual, Danny Bailey and Andrew Detmer. Sean Rotar will join us shortly as uh, we speak of something that we, at least in May, have not spoken of in 14 years. And... That is a Western Conference final appearance by the Denver Nuggets, who back in 2009 met the Los Angeles Lakers for the Western Conference title. The Nuggets were probably as good in 2009 as they ever were through the regular season, although I think if not for unusual circumstances, the team the next year might have been better. And, of course, the 2013 team won 57 games. This year's team won 53, similar kind of year to the one they had in 2009. They get to the conference finals after decisioning Chris Paul's New Orleans and Dirk Nowitzki's Dallas Mavericks facing the Lakers, splitting the first four games, losing game five, which they actually had a pretty good chance to win in the second half, and coming back here and putting forth their worst effort of that season, at least in the playoffs, in losing to the Lakers in six games. The Nuggets and Lakers have, of course, since met in the playoffs. They met in 2012 in an earlier round series, and in the bubble in 2020, but that was a series that was played down in Orlando later on during the uh, final days of summer in 2020 due to the special circumstances engendered by the lockout and shutdown, lockdown, whatever you choose to call it, as a result of the uh, COVID-19 pandemic. But now they meet with teams that are almost completely different from the two teams that faced each other back in 2020. The Nuggets were the first team to qualify for the conference finals this year. When last we left you on Friday afternoon, the Miami Heat had not yet clinched its series with the New York Knicks. And, of course, the Lakers and Golden State were still going in their best-of-seven series, and the Boston Celtics are set to face off against the Philadelphia 76ers in Game 7 of their series, which, of course, was played yesterday. We know now that it will be Nuggets-Lakers, as expected. Uh, the Lakers won at home on Friday night and won big, uh, not quite as emphatically as the Nuggets had 
taken down the Phoenix Suns, but convincingly enough. And then, of course, we saw Miami take out the Knicks, and we saw Boston obliterate Philadelphia yesterday so that we have the conference finalists now established. And Denver has, for what it's worth, along with Miami, the best playoff record of 2023, both Denver and Miami, 8-3, and three. the Lakers 8-4, and four, and the Celtics 8-5 and five in the playoffs. The Celtics, perhaps at their best, have looked like the most impressive of the four teams, but at their worst, you're beginning to think a college team or even a junior varsity team somewhere could take them to seven games in a best of seven series because they play on at least uh, two occasions so badly that they couldn't possibly win against much of anybody. Uh, the steady teams in the playoffs have been Denver and Miami. Now, when you look at the Lakers in Miami and try to assess how good they are, as uh, Sean Rotar has joined us, Sean, my question to you would be, is it a matter more of Miami being impressive or did their wins have more to do with the shortcomings of their respective opponents, the Milwaukee Bucks and the New York Knicks? And the same question for the Lakers in the West, who uh, swept through in uh, six games against Memphis and a series of similar length against Golden State. Was it more a matter of the Lakers rising up or Memphis and Golden State being so fundamentally flawed that a lot of teams could have beaten both in a best-of-seven series. Well, I mean, it's a little of both, right? And there there are a lot of situations in which you can say that for most of the playoffs. I mean, you could say that for the Nuggets and the Suns, who had extraordinary talent but were flawed when it comes to a, a lack of depth that they surrendered to acquire Kevin Durant. So I think when you look at any of these teams, in any of these series, you can get kind of a similar vibe. Because with the exception, I would say, of that Philly-Boston series in which both teams uh, had great games and had awful games, as you pointed out, most of the teams that they've gone through have been flawed. Uh, the, the Timberwolves for the Nuggets, obviously, uh, you could make an argument there wasn't like an immense flaw. They just weren't as talented. The flaw with the, the Suns was depth. When you're talking about Memphis, obviously they were discombobulated after the John Morant situation, which apparently and, continues, and by the way. still may be discombobulated right. by the John Morant situation. And the, because it's a new situation now. Another new one. Yeah, you could probably start putting away the guns when the Instagram comes out any time you want, Job. But the that team obviously had, had major issues coming in. The Golden State Warriors, terrible on, on the road. And a team that looks like they're struggling with their identity as some of their star players age a little bit. But I I take nothing away from the Lakers who are playing their very best ball of the season right now. They did a brilliant job. Rob Perlink is their GM who had been uh, somewhat maligned, and I think justifiably so, then comes into the trade deadline and does, if I might say, a little bit of what Calvin Booth did with the Nuggets in understanding, okay, I have LeBron James, I have Anthony Davis, I need to put pieces around them. Not worried about getting the overall talent level. I want guys who fit with these two guys. They've done it. They're playing really, really good basketball right now. And to that end, that makes this really fascinating. The last, this is going to be four straight times the Nuggets and Lakers have met in the Western Conference Finals. And as you started the program, you know, you went straight to 
09, because that was the last traditional Western Conference yeah. Finals. The last one fans could go to, for sure. Between the Nuggets and the Lakers. Right, right between yeah. the Nuggets and the Lakers. But this, this is such an intriguing matchup, because I look at it, and I think that the Nuggets are the better team. But there is certainly a weight of history. There is a difference in star power. There is a difference in the way that the league tends to look at these things in general. You know, that I... I get nervous a little bit when I see Boston, Miami, Los Angeles, you know, David Stern type of dream situation, and then Denver. Now, that's not well, to suggest that the, you know, that anything's funny going to happen here. But, yeah, it, it feels like you, the Nuggets are fighting against more than the Lakers. They're fighting against sort of the, the momentum of the league itself. Prior to coming over here today, uh, uh, Bill Fickey was uh, nice enough to put on kind of informal gathering of former ABA people at uh, his establishment and was talking to uh, a couple, including George Carl and Dan Essel. It's good to see Dan. And both made the point that uh, if you talk even to NBA people who are in the know, they will tell you not that there is any kind of conspiracy afloat per se, but beware of the NBA's somewhat unstated, but fairly clear preference for return to the glory days of the 1980s when the Boston Celtics on three occasions in 84, 85, and 1987 met the Los Angeles Lakers for the championship of the world. Bird magic, maybe not quite the scintillating sort of star power that Bird and Magic offered in their primes with LeBron James and Jason Tatum. Jason Tatum probably in his prime. I hate to think what his prime would look like if he isn't in his prime right, right. now. But LeBron, of course, at the age of 38. But still, an L.A.-Boston series would be fascinating, not only for the NBA, but for the uh, entity covering the NBA Final. So I just beware of that, not in the sense that the fix will be in or anything uh, terribly conspiratorial, but 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 no, as as you pointed out, I think with the uh, due delicacy, uh, it, you have three large market teams in Denver uh, involved. I don't think the Miami Heat carry enough star power to be any more attractive than the Nuggets would be. In fact, I think they're less attractive than the Nuggets would be as a viewing proposition. But there is no doubt that Boston and L.A. would be, uh, again, uh, having been such a significant part of NBA history, especially in the NBA Finals, that a a Laker-Celtic series would be greeted uh, with enthusiasm by the NBA. Um, I think for pure basketball junkies, if there is such a thing as mm-hmm. pure and chunky that can be used in the, in the same, <laughs> uh, same sentence, I I would 
like to see Denver-Boston. I think that would be a scintillating series because you have two guys who are at their best unstoppable, unguardable. We saw Jason Tatum break Steph Curry's record yesterday for most points in a game seven, which had just been set by Curry a few weeks ago. 51 points for Jason Tatum yesterday. And, of course, we've seen Jokic in all his splendor during these playoffs already. But um, it's a good thing the Nuggets have home court advantage. I'll it is. It is. And it's it's a funny way of saying it. I mean, you're, you're trying to dance around it. But the, the reality is there is an inherent lean. And there there is in virtually every league save the NFL, which has gotten to itself to a level in which it does not matter. You can grab... Uh, the Jacksonville Jaguars and the Green Bay Packers in the Super Bowl, and it would draw the exact same ratings around the world as anywhere else. It doesn't matter. The, the NFL's found a way to, to defeat that. But the truth of the matter is the NBA has long been the league that has had the worst feel about it, that things have been maneuvered to get big cities into play. And that's going to be a particular challenge because you're also talking about one of the most significant players that's ever to play in LeBron James. I don't think, even though he's had a terrific career, he's a national champion, NBA champion, I don't think there are people that decide, what am I going to watch on television? No, Anthony Davis is on. I got to catch that. But I, LeBron James? LeBron James is uh, is Tiger Woods. Uh, he, he's the kind of guy that when he's on, people watch. And Boston is Boston. I don't believe that around the country, necessarily, uh, Jason Tatum and Jalen Brown quite have any more cachet than Nikola Jokic, to be honest. Oh, no, honest. I don't think Except so. for the location. But it's the franchise. But it's the franchise. And it kind of runs counter to the NBA's proclivity for promoting individual stars. When it comes to the Lakers and the Celtics, that's a generational rivalry. Correct. That goes back to the 1950s when Elgin Baylor joined the Lakers, and they weren't even in Los Angeles mm-hmm. at that point, but played the Celtics in what was, at least at that point, a rather one-sided uh, NBA Finals series. But especially once they got to L.A., it seemed like the West Baylor and finally Chamberlain Lakers were playing the Celtics in the Finals every year. It wasn't literally that way. And actually, during the 80s, it only happened three times that they met. Out of all the years that the Lakers and Celtics were great, only three times did they meet in the finals. But the, those three, at least two of the three, the first two, were iconic series that will be remembered forever. The Celtics in seven in 1984, after being down by a game and being in imminent danger of going down two games with home court advantage. First two games of that year in Boston. The, the the famous uh, 1985 uh, Monday massacre in game one of the finals when Kareem Jabbar, uh, Abdul-Jabbar looked like he was 85 years old, um, at least 45 years old in game one, but the Lakers came back and won the series in six games and won the series in Boston. Of course, two years later, uh, Magic's uh, baby sky hook uh, wrapped up uh, a ball game in which uh, 
Back then, of course, they were uh, in the 2-3-2 format, which no longer exists for right. uh, the NBA playoffs, uh, the NBA finals specifically. But uh, certainly, uh, we remember uh, it, it was Kobe and Pierce, right, in 2008. The Celtics won in 2010. The Lakers uh, managed to win, and the Lakers had won in 2009, of course, against the uh, Orlando Magic. Uh, in a year, I think, again, in which the Nugget-Laker winner would have beaten Orlando, just as uh, many claim, including those around the Lakers, that had the Nuggets won in the bubble against the Lakers in the Western Conference Finals in 2020, they would have beaten the Miami Heat, and they would have been the bubble champions of the world uh, in 19... Uh, I'm sorry, in 2020. So uh, it, it, there's it, there's history here. There's intrigue here. Uh, but uh, the Nuggets have, uh, apart from a mini series in 1979 that was best of three between the two teams, in which the Nuggets had the third game at home and lost it mm-hmm. on a last-second skyhook by Kareem, the Nuggets haven't had home court advantage. The Lakers have always had home court advantage. Now the Nuggets have it. And... I think that will produce, finally, a result favorable to the Nuggets after seven tries against the Lakers historically, in which the Nuggets are 0 for 7. And as you pointed out the other day, I was incorrect and you were correct. 8 and 25 25. is the all-time series record in games from the Nuggets' perspective against the Lakers. They have lost more than three out of every four games in a playoffs to the Lakers. Only one of the series... Played, they did play one best of three and one best of five, but of all the best of seven series they played, only one series went seven, and that was back in 2012 with uh, teams that, uh, uh, how should we say, were considerably less accomplished than the two teams now are 11 years later in 2023. It will be obviously a fascinating matchup, and I'm inclined to agree with you, Sandy. I mean, it feels as if this is... I mean, this is clearly an opportunity for the Nuggets that they have not had before, not at this level. And it will be curious to see how they get this going, especially in game one. Obviously, we'll talk about this uh, a lot today, but we do want to touch on potentially, at least according to the head coach, big news for the Denver Broncos, including one of their star players, maybe being ready for the beginning of the season. We'll discuss that next on My Life Sports. Sandy Clough and Sean Trotar, presented by Burnham Law. Hire the winner at BurnhamLaw.com. Here's Sean and Sandy. Sandy, back in October, Javante Williams suffered a, a serious knee injury. As everyone knows, an ACL injury, but it's really important to know. It's more than the ACL. Yes. He tore his ACL, his LCL, the lateral collateral ligament, and the posterior lateral corner, which is the PLC. So he tore not only the ACL, but one of the other cruciate ligaments and the uh, another one in there. So he tore, tore three, including, you know, two of the big ones. You have ACL, LCL, MCL, PCL, mm-hmm. tore two. He tore two of those four, and then this other one in the corner. So the expectation is it's going to be a long recovery, and everything we had heard said the same thing. Well, prior to the draft, just on uh, – 
literally about three weeks ago. George Payton was asked about Javante Williams' recovery timeline, and here's what he said. Javante is doing really well in his rehab. We don't have a date, but we feel good. We feel good that he'll be back this season. We're not entirely sure when. He's progressing very well. Okay, that's safe enough. Right. Equivocal enough, I think. In other words, we think he'll have it at some point during the year, but we don't even know when. Sure, sure. That was three weeks ago. Now, Sean Payton, beginning of Denver's rookie minicamp on Saturday, the Broncos' new head coach said, our current starter when asked about Javante Williams, is doing extremely well. I would tell you that we expect him to be ready for the start of training camp, and that's good news. His rehab is going well. I don't want to speak for him uh, or Bo, and he's referring to Bo Lowry, the the VP of Player Health and Performance, or anyone else, but we get the daily reports. We're pretty tight-lipped relative to information going out, but I've read a lot, and I think his rehab is going well. End quote. There's a big difference between three weeks ago, we think we'll have him this year, at some unknown point. In other words, not like Gabriel Landscott. Well, and it definitely doesn't sound like, when you say we think we'll have him this <laughs> season, we'll think we'll have you generally don't think week one. No. You're thinking you're at some point before some the point, season ends, and, and you're, he'll be back. Guess from people you've talked to uh, was somewhere around mid-season, mm-hmm. maybe maybe a little later, maybe a little earlier. Who knows? But that, that was the, the general range, uh, you know, week eight, week 12, somewhere in between. But this is a, a wholly different I mean, quote, statement. we expect him to be ready for the start of training camp. And, you know. It, wow. It, what it does three weeks do for it, you? It doesn't run completely counter to what George Payton said. But when Sean Payton says that, nobody said that. Now, it's all right to say, as he did at the outset, that his rehab is progressing well and maybe better than expected. Maybe he's a little ahead of the curve. But then to say, not only will he be ready for week one, he'll be ready for the start of training camp. Now, that I understand that can mean different things to yeah. different people, that he's ready to uh, dress out and participate in walkthroughs, lighter practice, but anything full speed, probably not. Uh, playing in the games in the preseason could be out of the question. I understand there's a little bit of wiggle room in there for Sean Payton, but that's a pretty bold declaration. And I, I was left feeling, what's the point? Yeah, that's my question. What, what's Why? the advantage in making that kind of rather definitive declaration? A lot more definitive than anything George Payton had said just a few weeks ago. Seven months into his rehab, it's we believe we'll have him at some point in the season. You know, seven months and an additional three weeks in, in after his surgery, we'll have him ready at the beginning of training camp. And like you said, what does that mean? I don't know. Does it mean he's ready to lift? But but the presumption is that's a, a statement right there that, yes, that this is going to be a situation in which they believe he, he's going to be ready to go. And... That, to me, is pretty intriguing because I'm with you. I don't know why you'd want to do that. The Broncos training camp doesn't begin for two more months, roughly. Well, two and a half. Yeah, really. Yeah, close to two and a half. So, I mean, you're still 10 weeks out? Sure. So, that's a ways. Yeah. And... 
the question would be why say it, right? Now, are you a, are you a Super Bowl contending team with that guy being a, a key cog? Is that why you want an update? Okay, yeah, but the Broncos aren't that. Nope. Are you being raked over the coals in the local media of how you haven't uh, addressed the running back position? No, not, not really. Not that I'm aware of. Not really. So I, I mean, I like P. Ryan. You like P. I like Ryan. P. Ryan a lot. I love everybody that I talk to. Likes and look at the, the running backs that are P. still in. out there. You and and there's still people out there be, that you can bring in a veteran running back. It doesn't have to be on Ezekiel a, Elliott a tryout basis. There's and tons of guys and out find there. room for him. I, I, you know, I, I, I'm more to be honest with you. I'm more worried about the offensive line. Me too. Than I am about the running back position. Sure. And they fully address the offensive line. I mean, they drafted an offensive lineman. Right, they spent on free and agents. they spent big money in free agency on two offensive linemen who will be plugged in as starters from day one. Who who are healthy players? They're not rehabbing like Billy Turner was last mm-hmm. year when he was projected to be the starting right tackle, and he wasn't even close to being ready at the start of the season or really to to go full bore. I don't think at any point during the season was he up to anything close to playing condition. So this is a statement that I have trouble reconciling, not only with previous statements, but with what most coaches would say. I, I would think the general manager would be the one to perhaps be more optimistic about a quick recovery and the coach would be covering their bases a little I, bit. I've got a long-term contract. Uh, he's a key guy on my team. The last thing I'm going to do is is rush him back or put a date out there that lays the foundation for an expectation that I would think Javante Williams would have trouble meeting. And I don't know why put additional pressure on him to come Yeah, back that's the thing I don't understand. Two, maybe three months before, most doctors would say someone with those injuries, and I say plural, those yeah, injuries, injuries not just the ACLs, would be able to come back. It isn't just an ACL. An ACL would be serious enough on its own. It's more than that. So I, I'm a little puzzled. Uh, I don't know what the public relations value in it is. That's what so I don't get. I just don't get it. That's I, what I don't get. What I'm is, glad what is you the don't reason? <laughs> I just try to figure out, well, you know, any of these things, when you make any sort of public statements, what is the upside and what are the downsides, right? The, the upside is people get excited about Javante Williams. The downside is what if you're wrong? You've put, you've already now put some public pressure on Javante Williams uh, to get back at the beginning of training camp, because you've already said he's expected to be now. So you've put pressure on your player to potentially come back sooner than he's ready to come back. You have risked looking a little foolish if you're wrong, and it is more of a mid-season situation, uh, and you're still new in this role and trying to gain the trust of uh, of the fan base. I just don't see the upside of making this statement in May. And that's, I guess, where I would say, if you're thinking of all the possibilities, there's one. Maybe Javante Williams is really ahead of schedule. Maybe he actually is. Maybe he's just way ahead of schedule. Maybe the surgery went great. Maybe the rehab went great. 
But again, besides building excitement for the Denver Broncos, what does that give you to say it? And that's where I get confused. It, it's it's confusing. It feels a little, quite frankly, desperate. In hey, fans, we know we've had now more than half a decade of bad football that we put in front of you. I mean, Sean Payton for right. that. Why, why does he have to come out and say anything? Even George Payton, I could somewhat understand. That, that was a George Payton draft pick. And I thought, all things considered, I'll put it this way. I thought it was as good a move as George Payton has made in the draft since sure. he first got here because not only did he get Javante Williams on the second round, he moved up to get him. He didn't just sit back and wait for Javante Williams to fall into his lap. In fact, when the Broncos are picking 40th, George Payton felt he had to get up to 35 because there's no way that Javante Williams would be there at 40. And some anecdotal evidence, I suppose, has come out to suggest that he very well may have been right, that the Broncos weren't the only team who thought that he was a legitimate early second-round draft point. That they weren't alone in that regard. Right. So good job by Payton, and not only uh, moving up to get this player, but targeting this player as as being desirable as somebody who could be special at a position where, unless you're special, it's a matter of beauty being in the eyes of the beholder, and really, in this day and age, almost no running back is getting anywhere close to 20 carries a game, and and for proof as to what it's like if you do give a running back that kind of burden. Ezekiel Elliott is, is sitting is, out, is sitting sitting out, out there. When unsigned. No, nobody wants him. And this is a guy who, during his first two years, maybe three in the As good league, as anyone was in as the good league. as anybody. And last year, you couldn't watch the Cowboys without concluding that Pollard was the healthier of the two backs and frankly had more left in the proverbial gas tank yep. than Ezekiel Elliott did. Ezekiel Elliott looked like Todd Gurley mm-hmm. late Where with the Rams. Wheels just the came wheels off. just came off. And then nobody wanted him. Did did Gurley really have anything resembling a career after the Rams let him go? No. no. Not that I remember. He he went to the Falcons for a bit. It didn't, right. t- didn't pan out. No. And uh, yeah, it just feels like an unnecessary statement. Uh, the, the only thing I can come to is hopefully, hey, maybe maybe he's exceeding expectations everywhere. Well, but uh, you know, it's like the daily briefing that uh, the president gets. Yeah, just kind depending of depending on the president, sure. sometimes even reads it, uh, it. That that they get injury updates, fairly detailed ones every day. Sure, he gets those. We don't, obviously. So does he know more than we do? Oh, certainly does. Almost certainly. But does he know so much as to make such a definitive proclamation? Uh, I'm not sure that willing it into existence will make it happen along the timetable that he seems to be setting out for Javante Williams. Yeah, it's it's a fascinating choice. And, I, I, I again, I, I go back to that Jamal Murray situation with the Nuggets. I, I just don't love... When teams yeah. put pressure on players yeah. to come back from serious injuries because it changes, it alters the trajectory of the rehab and it gets away from the medical people making the best decisions for their patients. 
And even if it's to only a certain percentage that that happens, that's a problem because not only is it a potentially long-term risk, but it's a short-term risk too. Uh, It doesn't take much to have a setback in rehab that makes things worse. And so when you are pushing, trying to hit a date, that's the problem. The human body heals the way it heals. Now, medical technology is amazing, and diets are amazing, and the way people know how to train, amazing. It's far better than it's ever been, and it will continue to be that way. But if you talk to most doctors, they will not tell you this is a date you'll be ready to go by. They, they might say, hey, well, we'll hope so. We're going to try, but your body's going to make that decision. Look, I've had a, I'm not Javante Wise, but I've had a lot of orthopedic surgeries, and I can't tell you how many times I've been told your body's going to make that decision. From multiple different surgeons. You can do all the work you want, but it's going to heal the way it's going to heal. And so I think artificially kind of putting a time on it, because it wasn't even, what bothered me with that statement is it isn't even, well, we'd like, well, we have, it's, quote, I would tell you that we expect him to be ready for the start of training camp. Expect. That puts weight on Williams. And I don't think that's a particularly healthy thing to do. And I'm trying to figure out what would be the upside? And Sandy, I just can't find it. Remember when Ryan Clady, I think, tore a patella tendon playing basketball mm-hmm. during the offseason? Yes, right. Way back when? Way back when. I remember that. And uh, the Broncos were being coached, I believe at the time, by Josh McDaniels. And he made his displeasure uh, rather well-known. And for whatever reason, Clady was able to come back from that injury, perhaps himself, and I've never talked to Ryan Clady about this, so I'm I'm speculating. But maybe the fact that he received what I thought, for the most part, was fair criticism for getting injured in a pickup basketball game. Right. That's one of the things like skiing you really don't want to do, do in the offseason. You're really, you're really yeah. not supposed to do dangerous stuff or stuff that would, you know, potentially result. Pickup basketball game, there are really no rules. Right. <laughs> right. And, and injury is always a possibility, even to the most skilled of players. Uh, but perhaps motivated by the fact that he had – and I know Ryan Clady well enough to know that he's a great teammate. He came back a lot faster than anybody, including the Broncos, expected to. And maybe he was driven in his rehab by uh, a degree of embarrassment or being hurt that way and not hurt playing football. It was a non-football-related injury. And he was ready to go at the start of the season. Now, was he at his best? Maybe not, but he was good enough to play. I mean, Ryan Clady mm-hmm. at 50% yeah. was better than 90% of the tackles in the league at that time. And I'm not saying he was only 50%. He was probably a little bit better than that. But I have never heard of the reverse happening, particularly as it's a third party, a presumably well-informed, knowledgeable third party, admittedly, but still a third party saying, oh, no, uh, sometime this season isn't right, it'll be training camp. That's our expectation. We expect 
that he will be ready for training camp. And that is 10 weeks away. Yeah. 70 days, give I, or take. I don't understand it. I don't know why you, why you would go that route. So hopefully it's because he has information and then somehow the, the rehab is uh, it's coming back real quick. But remember, he, he had the injury. I mean, he had the surgery in October. You're going to tell me he's going to be back in late July? I, okay. I mean. And, and, and again, an ACL injury is 12 to 18 months. This was more than merely. Three ligaments? Three knee ligaments? <laughs> an gonna, ACL injury. It's going to make Adrian Peterson looked like a chump. Yes, that's right. No, he came back in six months, and it was viewed as medical miracle. A medical miracle, uh, you know, along the lines of, you know, Peyton Manning playing after he had had four surgeries in nineteen months, and within a year playing the best football over the course of a season that maybe any quarterback has ever played over the course of one particular season, 2013, 10 years ago. The Denver Nuggets will be taking on the Los Angeles Lakers in the Western Conference Finals. That'll happen in Denver tomorrow, and the media nationally is already all over it. Uh, Anthony Davis is opposed, supposedly at least, and Nikola Jokic's kryptonite, so say Stephen A. Smith. Nuggets fans, just strap in. You're going to have to deal with this for a while. We'll take a look at what's reality and what's fantasy from the national media next on My Life Sports. This is Sandy Clough and Chandro Tar on Mile High Sports. The Denver Nuggets, of course, find themselves uh, facing off a very good Lakers team, one that is playing the best basketball of the season, one that had an overhaul during the trade deadline that made them significantly better. And the idea now, of course, you're going against the Lakers, uh, legions of fans, a, a comfort level when it comes to national people who have watched the Lakers. LeBron James is there. Uh, Anthony Davis is there. The idea that the, the Lakers are secretly not only better, but a lot better because they have those stars. And, and you get that nationally at times. Stephen A. Smith said uh, Davis is Jokic's kryptonite. Well, over the over 20 games in his career, and against, you know, Anthony Davis's teams. They have matched up quite a bit, obviously. Jokic has averaged 18.6 points, 9.7 rebounds, and 5.3 assists. Well under what you'd expect over the course of his career. But let's look at it this season. 26.3, 12.7, Yeah. And, and listen. While they, shooting 58.3%. They, they met in 2020. Um, Davis has shown signs recently of being maybe as good as he was in 2020 and he was plenty good in 2020 and I would dare say in the bubble in that particular series he might have been better than Jokic was he had that game-winning shot which turned the whole series around I I mean made it an easy series for the Lakers I think the Lakers would have won the series anyway had he missed the shot it was a three-pointer to win a ball game Mm -hmm. and 
he certainly made things easier for the Lakers when he made that shot. <laughs> it became a five-game series instead of six, seven-game series. Jokic is a much better player than he was in 2020. Jokic was not the MVP in 2020. Right. He was the MVP in 21. He was the MVP in 22. Uh, he could have been, and I think should have been closer to being the MVP this year than he was. But in any case, he is, by acclamation, anybody who's paid any attention at all knows Jokic is a better uh, offensive player and probably a better defensive player too, but certainly a better offensive player um, than he was in 2020. And he was a very good, maybe even great offensive player in 2020. He's better now. Does Davis have the quick feet and the long arms to bother him? Of course he does. Uh, does he have a special sense of anticipation that when healthy makes him a great rebounder? I'm talking about Davis now. Mm-hmm. Of course. Of course. If, if you watched him play, you know that when he is physically right, he he's not a good rebounder. He's a great rebounder. And a very good shot blocker. And he can block shots. And he's better at that than Jokic is, of course. But. To me, the central question of this series is not whether Jokic will be the better player. Um, I think that's basically a given. But if Jokic is the best player in this series, to what degree is he the best player? And I think he will be the best player, but if it's only a performance that makes him slightly better than Davis and or James, well, that's two to one in favor of the Lakers. Now, if Jokic is clearly, especially on offense, the dominant player in this series, I think even if Davis and James are two and three or three and two, then the advantage goes to the Nuggets because I think the Nuggets have the wild card player in this series, and that player would be Jamal Murray against whom I'm not sure the Lakers have an answer in in a matchup sense. Right. Right? Um, you know, for the Nuggets to win, does Aaron Gordon have to be better than LeBron James? No. no. Does he have to he be He didn't have to good? be better than Kevin Durant no. either. But, but, but that, to me, is a little like the Jokic-Davis matchup, where if Jokic is only a little better than Davis, advantage Lakers, and if... Gordon is only marginally outplayed by James, advantage Nuggets. Advantage Nuggets at that point. So let's say the best four players in the series turn out to be Jokic 1, Davis 2, James 3, and Gordon 4. All right? If they're tightly bunched, if let's say each of them wins a game for their respective teams, then it's 2-2, and... Maybe then it's the secondary players, the bench guys who step out, who end up making the difference. In that case, I, I might even give an edge to the Lakers if it's close. But if Jokic is by far the best player and Gordon is at least competitive with James to the point where he's not being dominated by him, I, I think the Nuggets will win the series in six or seven games. The problem that I see with that is that I just can't – I think there's, there's got to be another way around it because I can't ask Aaron Gordon to realistically come anywhere near what LeBron James is going to do 
when it comes to stats. I, I, I just don't. Well, no, I, I don't think it's a stat thing. I think it's a, can you wear him down? Can Davis um, keep Jokic from going off? And can Gordon keep James from 30 points, nine rebounds, and nine assists and complete domination of the game the other night? And yet the encouraging part from the Nuggets side is if you looked at the first five games of that series, Andrew Wiggins versus LeBron James, mm-hmm. James a little better, but not much. And injured Wiggins was not able to guard LeBron the other night, and the Warriors had no one else. Well, yeah, no Le- one LeBron else shot could, even ten for fourteen. I mean, right. yeah, it was ridiculous. But LeBron, the first five games, you can look it up, as yep. Casey used to say, uh, he was not an efficient basketball player. He hovered, he five he hovered games around the in the first not, five games. He, he hovered around fifty-two percent shooting, which for for him is not all that no, spectacular. I, uh, I mean, I, I, I didn't. Think, I thought he was extremely good, especially at age thirty-eight, and yet he was not the best player when the Lakers won. Davis was. It was Davis. Dominant, right? Uh, player, and, and and so I'm saying Wiggins held his own. If Gordon, who is built to the inch and to the pound, right. almost exactly the same and way LeBron is built, and he's younger, if he can eleven hold years younger, his own, yep. he doesn't have to outplay him. That is such an immense matchup because he's 11 years younger. Own, the Nuggets are in good shape. And if Davis can hold his own with Jokic, the Lakers are in good shape. If it's, you know, one guy averages 26, the other guy averages 23. One guy averages 13 rebounds, the other guy averages 12. Uh, one guy blocks four shots, the other guy blocks one. One guy has six assists, the other guy has two or three. And, and, and then... You, you know the people I'm talking about who sure. would have an advantage in those areas, but it's slight advantage, and it, it's it's different. A little bit of Davis is the better shot blocker, and Jokic is the better passer and has the ball a hell of a lot more than Anthony Davis has the ball. So it's a question to me of whether Davis can hold his own and whether Gordon can hold his own with LeBron. And then for the Nuggets, there's Murray, and I'm not sure – there was a Murray equivalent on the Lakers side. No. So the, the nugget idea is, uh, I, I guess, maybe between Gordon's defense and Porter's offense. Porter's there's also like not a Laker, you know, Davis isn't going to play Porter. Uh, LeBron's not going to play Porter. So if Porter gets going offensively, that could be an advantage for the Nuggets. But yes. if Port, Porter is up and down, uh, depending on whether it's a home game or a road game, that sort of thing, then I'm not sure the Nuggets get we'll the talk, kind of advantage that they might need to win the season. We will talk more about that because when you talk about the LeBron James and Aaron Gordon and you know that's what the assignment's going to be and Anthony Davis and Jokic, whatever right. position you want to say they play at, it doesn't yeah, matter. That's right. But, whatever do, uh, position Davis says right. he wants to play at, he will he likes to think of himself as a forward he will be playing against. But you Jokic have a three-point shooter in Austin Reeves that's, that's maturing, but also is facing off against one of the Nuggets' best defensive players in Caldwell Pope. Uh, the D'Angelo right. Russell, Dennis well, Schroeder matchup with Murray will be interesting. But the one that we will dig into. Yeah, it in but a I, bit. I, I kind of think uh, it'll be Reeves on Murray. I really do. I, I, Russell is not a good defensive player. Reeves is a good defensive player. Um, I, I think you put Russell on Caldwell Pope if, if you're the Lakers. Russell isn't a good enough defensive player. You don't want Russell getting in foul trouble. Um, and, and Russell is their version of Porter, up 
and down. And when he's good, he's really, really good. But like Porter, he can't guard you or me. Well, we'll talk more about that in a bit because the Porter part of it, I think, is pretty interesting. But also interesting, very quietly, under the radar, not that they're necessarily going anywhere when you're talking about playoffs, but the Colorado Rockies that looked atrocious weeks ago. I mean, atrocious, abysmal. Uh, Go out and shut out the Phillies, drive Bryce Harper so bonkers he gets himself ejected. They have now won three out of their four last series. Playing very, very well, actually, in an odd sort of fashion, including a great performance by Kyle Freeland. We'll touch on all of it with the Denver Gazette's Daniel Allentuck next on My Life Sports. <laughs> 